Today's reading is from Matthew 14, 22 to 23. Matthew 14, 22 to 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After that he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat battered by the waves was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost, and they crowd out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Pearl. Good morning. My friends, it is a beautiful day this morning. Amen. And uh, this morning when I woke up, I, I thought that I was going to challenge everybody. When they go home and maybe get in the pool or maybe go to the Rappahannock, try walking on water uh, like Peter, okay? So that's my challenge to you this afternoon. Let me know how you do. Um, it's not about faith, right? And we'll get to that in a little bit, but uh, just, just dip your toe in it a little bit, okay? Um, so good morning again. Y'all are awake. That's great. Uh, we are in this sermon series, Recalibrate. And a few weeks ago, we began this sermon series looking at our foundation and asking ourselves uh, those questions. What really matters in this life? What should our priorities be? Where should our focus be? Examining all of those and thinking about, too, what shapes us? What is our foundation as followers of Christ? And to what and where is Jesus calling us? As we began the sermon series, we focused on our foundation from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. And we continue that with Jesus's uh, paraphrase of all of the law and all of the prophets and even the Ten Commandments, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our might, and our strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Last two weeks ago, we looked at the prophet Micah. And what does the Lord truly require of us? To do justice and to love mercy or love kindness and to walk humbly with God. And last week, we looked in the mirror. Knowing and acknowledging that it's not about how we define ourselves or how the world tries to identify or define us. But it's about what God says that we are. That we are called. That we are redeemed. That we are formed. That we are compassion or companioned and created. Precious, honored, and loved. And today we look at a recalibration of our focus in Matthew chapter 14. That Pearl read for us this morning. Before we dive deep into those waters, will you pray with me? Holy and living God, we give you thanks for this day, a day that you have created, and we gather to rejoice and be glad in it. 
God, whatever storms uh, threaten our boats and our lives, we pray that we might be able to acknowledge your presence in the midst of it all with us. And so, God, calm our hearts this day and calm the storms that threaten us and our boats. And may we know that you are present with us throughout it all. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Because, O oh Lord, you are a rock and our redeemer. And together, all of God's people said, Amen. So a few years ago, I noticed that as I was driving at night, my vision became increasingly worse week after week. And I passed it off as I was just getting older, right? It's just a part of life. Just passed it off. And then it got even worse that during the day in the daylight that I had to hold a book or a piece of paper up to my face that close in order to see the words that were printed on the screen. It looked as if there were halos around the lights as I was driving at night and even on the rear brakes or the rear lights on the cars in front of me, I couldn't see because it looked as if there were shimmering halos surrounding that and I couldn't even see the, the license plates of the cars in front of me. Yes, I still drove so that might scare many of you. But I just chalked it up as I was getting older and just passed it off as part of life. The following month, I went to my routine eye exam and the optometrist had sat me down in the exam chair and asked me to read the lines on the Snellen chart that was projected on the wall. I went through that first letter. It's a gimme, right? It's so big. If you can't see that, friends, you should not be driving. But I saw it, so don't worry. I went down line after line with both eyes and I was fine. But then the doctor, the optometrist had told me to cover my eyes one after the other. And with one eye, I read all the way down. It was good. It was my good eye. But then the other eye, I looked at it. I could see that first letter and it was fine. But that second line started to get a little fuzzy. And then by the third line, it looked like there was just misshapen black dots on the wall. Seriously, the third line of letters, I couldn't even see. Why was I still driving? Are you serious? At that point, I was just guessing. I sounded like a contestant in the final round of Wheel of Fortune, trying to think of the rest of the alphabet after Vanna and Pat Sajak have said R-S-T-L-A. Oh, what are the other letters? What does that look like trying to make it out? At this point, the doctor had stopped the exam and wanted to test me for this condition called keratoconus. And so I was still sitting in the exam chair when uh, he went through this new test. And he gave me some special glasses to wear for this these other letters and lines that were projected on the wall. These special glasses looked like those flip-up shades that many of you might still have from the 1980s, right? They just flip down, flip up, and you're cool and you're good to go, right? I wanted to take these glasses glasses home with me because it was a fashion statement. No, but I didn't. I wish I would have because then it would have made for a great illustration. But rather, these eyeglasses that I was now wearing, instead of flipping up and flipping down, they flipped in from the side. Think about a DeLorean, right? So these were some pretty spectacle and spectacular spectacles, right? But the lenses that were a part of these glasses had various pinholes throughout the lenses so that I could focus on what was right in front of me. The issue with this condition was that I was looking at the big picture of things and I couldn't focus my eye on what was right in front of me. And so 
The doctor projected some more shapes on the walls and asked me to flip down one lens on the other side and one on the other and then report back what I saw. The last image was an X-shaped target and the doctor said, Mr. Harrison, just keep focusing on the cross. Always, I said. Friends, that is where our vision should always be focused, on the cross and on Jesus. Amen? By the, by the way, that, that's a real story and my eyes are really bad and that's why this music stand is so high up, okay? Uh, but I'm working on it, alright? We can't allow those other things to call and beckon for our attention and our sightline to be so consumed. And Jesus doesn't end up at the forefront, but rather on our periphery. At that appointment, the doctor had confirmed that I had keratoconus, where my vision is too expanse, and I stood in need of a procedure, a recalibration of my eyesight, so that I can hone in on what is really and clearly right in front of me. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. I'll wait. Matthew chapter 14. There are Bibles in the pew back in front of you. Those who are joining us at home, open up another tab and uh, join us on Matthew chapter 14. The story begins in Matthew chapter 14 with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer, getting beheaded as a spiteful gift for a person named Herodias. And upon hearing that tragic news, Jesus is grieved and he tries to retreat, tries to get away from it all. And so he hops into a boat and tries to go to a deserted place. But he can't because the crowds continue to follow him on foot. Seeing the crowds gaining traction on him on the shoreline, he finally goes to shore in Bethsaida. And the crowds gather around Jesus, and as our scripture says, he had compassion for them, and he cured their sick. As evening approached, the crowds and the disciples became hangry. Not hungry, but hangry. I think that's a mistranslation here. They were hangry. Say it with me. Because when you're really, really hungry, you're Hangry, right? So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, we should send these people away and have them go into the town and get food for themselves. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. And so they scrounged up what they could get, five loaves and two fishes. They bring it to Jesus. He blesses it and he gives it back to the disciples and he shares it with 5,000 plus people, as many as 10,000 people, including women and children. So much food that they had 12 baskets of leftovers. But we will get to that story uh, in a couple weeks as we begin a different sermon series. But at this point, Jesus has just blessed the food, transformed it into the multitudes of feeding 5,000 plus people, and they even had leftovers. Following that feast, Jesus tells the disciples, all right, Go get in the boat and go to the other location where we were planning to go to. And I imagine Jesus is dismissing the disciples in a way by saying, Listen, uh, you go ahead. I'm, I'm going to finish up here. I'm going to clean up and I want to spend some more time with the crowds. And just listen, I'll, I'll meet up with you tomorrow. And so the disciples begin this seven-mile trek to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus finally retreats and goes up to the mountain to pray. 
Mountains throughout scripture are a place or places where heaven and earth meet, a place where they are able to be in the presence of the divine and have contact. And so Jesus went up to be alone to that mountaintop. Maybe it was to grieve his cousin's death, John the baptizer. Maybe it was to rest and recover from feeding over 5,000 people at that meal. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus needed to retreat and be alone. And so in verse 24, we find that Jesus is on the mountain the disciples are in the boat. And in verse 24, it says that a great storm arose on the Sea of Galilee. And the wind and the waves began to threaten the disciples' boat. And the wind is blowing against them, pushing them in another direction. And they find themselves in the middle of the sea. The usual route that they would take as sailors and as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee would be close to the shoreline. They did not want to go into the middle of the sea. That wasn't a good fishing or sailing technique at all. They knew this because they were formerly fishermen, as Jesus had called at least four of them that we know. And there was this ancient nautical belief that in the middle of the sea, in the deepest part of a sea or an ocean... There's an abyss, a portal to the underworld. And with some of the disciples knowing this belief, mind you, a belief, being former fishermen and sailors, they knew that they needed to steer clear from the middle of the sea. But they couldn't because the wind and the waves continued to push them there. And they found themselves right over top of that alleged abyss. And what happens next? It's pitch black. Storms are raging, wind is blowing, and the disciples are in the boat in the middle of the ocean or the sea, no shoreline nearby, and they are atop of the abyss. And in the next moment, the disciples scream as they look up. And what do they say? Louder, come on. All together now. Eek, it's a ghost. Ah, it's a ghost, they scream. They don't know that it's Jesus. They think it's a spirit coming up from the abyss, coming to take them to the underworld. But Jesus recognizes their fear and says, take heart. Or as some translations put it, be encouraged. It is I. Do not be afraid. Can we say that together? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do you normally talk like that? It is I. Welcome, Pastor Jeff. It is I, Inigo Montoya, right? Who talks like that? It's kind of formal and awkward wording. It is I. And even if you translate it from the actual Greek, it says, be encouraged, take heart, I am. Do you talk like that? Be encouraged, take heart, I am. But if we look in the full context of Scripture, we might remember from Exodus 3, in that time between Moses and God, that is the divine name that God gives to Moses to announce his presence. I am is here. Do not be afraid. And in this portion of scripture, Jesus is identifying himself as God, the liberator, the creator, the redeemer of Israel, the same one who created the world and is the victor over all the chaos. And he, Jesus, will liberate the disciples and redeem them from their current treacherous situation. 
Jesus' words instill and instill courage and banish fear from the disciples, giving them this assurance that, no, it's not a ghost, but it is Jesus. It is God who is here with you in the middle of your storm, and that is good news. Amen? If you remember back to Exodus 3, uh, God and Moses had that great conversation. And they said, Moses was stammering to God, why? Why do I need to go? Send somebody else. And God says, no, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free. No, 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 Moses says, stammering. Don't you think you could find somebody else? No, God said, I need you. And so Moses asked God, well, who, what God should I tell them that has sent me? What God is communicating with me through a burning bush? And God says, my name is I am. I am that I am. And now nearly 1300 years later, Jesus stood on the waters in the darkness, in the midst of a storm, telling those disciples, I am is with you. Don't be afraid. My friends, whether literal or metaphorical storms, we all go through them throughout our lives. What are the storms of your life in this moment? Maybe you're here today because you're holding on to life white and knuckled and you're here this morning because you need hope and you're hoping for a word of hope. The story tells us that when we are walking through those storms of our lives, when the waves are crashing our boat and over top of us, that Jesus is still there with us. Amen? That Jesus is walking on water, coming to wherever we are and getting in our boat. Jesus doesn't make those storms get away because those storms of life are still present. But he is walking with us and sailing with us in our boat. When the waves are at their highest and fear and anger concern us and our livelihood, we need to be reminded that we are not alone. That Jesus still comes to us and rides in our boat. Awkward wording and all. It is I. Do not be afraid. Amen? Next. In verse 28, we find impetuous Peter yet again asking Jesus a follow-up question. Lord, if it is you... Command me to get out of the boat and walk on water. It's normal for Peter to have this kind of follow-up question. Seriously, why would he ask that though? Wouldn't it be a, a Jesus, come, take my hand and get in the boat? Or maybe he would plead with Jesus. Jesus, you have calmed the winds and the waves before. Jesus, calm it again right now. They're recalling back to chapter 8 of Matthew when they're in the boat and Jesus is asleep in the stern. And they wake Jesus up saying, Jesus, wake up. The storms are going to kill us. And Jesus wakes up and he says, peace, be still. And everything was still. But nonetheless, Peter calls out to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, if it is you, call me and command me to walk on water. Peter knows that if he's going to do anything impossible, something impossible like walking on water, it would only be because Jesus has asked him to do it and called him to do it. Peter knows that if he just hops out of the boat and tries to walk on water on his own, he will likely sink and sleep with the fishes. However, if Jesus calls him out of the boat, it will be as if he is walking on solid ground. 
So Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to get out of the boat and walk on water. Call me to do what you're doing. Call me to be more like you. And Jesus says what? Come. Come, he says to Peter. So Peter steps out of the boat. He begins walking on water. And meanwhile, the other disciples, the other 11, are still in the boat in fear and in terror. They don't ask to come out of the boat. And that boat represents for them some kind of safety net, some kind of safety zone or comfort zone. Even when the storms are present, we want those boats to shield us from that threatens, from all that threatens us. We would rather stay in that boat or in that comfort zone and never take those next steps out in faith, out of the boat. In Peter's desire to walk on water, he's not trying to be some uh, a part of some kind of party trick. But Jesus is saying to him, and Peter is saying to him, Jesus, I am here. I want to follow you. I want to be with you even in the middle of the storm. Whatever I need to do to get to you, I will do it. Uncertainty can open us up to the transformative work of God, which can inspire us and draw us nearer and closer and discover not only who God is, but who we are called and capable of doing as we draw nearer to God. Whenever fear is our motivating force in life, our answer will always be no. We will always have those excuses. They'll be there. But whenever we step out in faith, whenever we are motivated by faith and trust in Jesus just enough, the answer will be yes. And we will get out of the boat. We can't allow our fear to drag us down too deep. Amen? Jesus is calling us to get out of the boat. Perhaps the thing that kept the other 11 disciples in the boat was their fear of of sinking down. Maybe it was the fact that they were going to fail. Maybe they were fearful of the storm that was raging on around them. Maybe they thought that they were going to go to the bottom of the sea. Maybe they were just afraid in general. But Jesus' words to Peter, his invitation, do not be afraid. Don't make your mind up before you've set forth to do what you've been tasked. Don't determine the outcome before you've even started. Jesus says to Peter, come, come and walk with me on this water. And Peter steps out of the boat, starts walking on water. And this is the point we always focus on in the scripture, right? That Peter goes and he starts walking and then he becomes hesitant and he focuses on the wind and the waves. And then he begins, begins to sink. That's always what we focus on in this story. And then he calls out to Jesus, Lord, save me, Lord, rescue me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and picks him up. Fear is everywhere. We always struggle with fear and it's all the time. And even when we don't want to recognize it, we're all afraid of getting out of our comfort zone, outside of our safety zone, outside of the norm, because we might get hurt or we might fail. We might even fall flat on our faces. But even in our failure, Jesus was there. Even in Peter's failure, Jesus was there reaching out his hand and reaching down and saving him. Even in our failures, our life can be a witness for someone else. Amen? After Jesus pulls Peter up out of the waters and they get into the boat... You can't really tell the tone of voice as Peter is getting chastised by Jesus. You man of weak faith, why did you doubt? As it says in 1431, 
But I don't really think that Jesus was chastising him in that way. I think it was more of a, oh man, Peter, why did you look away? Why did you look somewhere else? I had you. Why did you have to worry? It was going to be fine. But come on, let's go get in the boat. At least Peter got out of the boat while the other 11 were still in the boat. At least Peter got out. After they got back into the boat and climbed in, the wind had settled down. And it says that the boat, those in the boat had worshipped him. And Jesus said, they said about Jesus that he must be the son of God. And they crossed the Sea of Galilee and they landed in Genesaret. Jesus got in the boat and the storm stopped. Why did these 12 begin to worship Jesus? Yes, he was the son of God, but he was also a carpenter from Nazareth. He was also a rabbi, right? He had called them to be fishers of people and they had seen him do some pretty amazing things. But in that moment, they worshiped him. In worshiping uh, from the text, it could mean two different things. Worship as we worship and praising God, but it could also mean paying homage to God or paying homage to a person who has just saved us. But they combine worship and saying that he must be the son of God together. So it is paying homage to God for saving them. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was or Jesus is, but they did understand what happened right in front of them. They witnessed Jesus do something amazing. They experienced divine power at work in, with, and through Jesus. My friends, in whatever circumstances you find yourselves, when you step out in faith, don't take your eyes off Jesus. Once you see God's faithfulness, it is easy to trust more and more. We, much like the disciples, like to point on what's going on outside of us, but Jesus points to what's going on inside of us. Storms happen in our lives. And it's not about the right kind of faith that will eliminate the storms. Because faith does not change the storms. It changes us. Faith does not take us around the storms, but carries us through. Faith allows us to see and to know and to allow Jesus to be at work. Faith allows us to be still and to be present in the midst of the storms. Peace is not found in the absence of the storm, but in the presence of Jesus. Amen? Peace is not found in the absence of the storm, but in the presence of Jesus. When Jesus invited Peter to come, Jesus didn't calm the storm first. Rather, Jesus invited Peter to come out into the storm, into the rough seas, That rebuke of Peter, it was because he took his eyes off Jesus and focused on the storm. We tend to think that Peter and peace go hand in hand where peace is found in the waves of life when they are calm. But Jesus never promised us smooth sailing. Instead, he promised to be with us always. When we look to Jesus, friends, we see God. God, the one who calms the wind and the waves. God, the one who calls us and encourages us to step out of the boat. To know that God is with us wherever we might be. Amen? Friends, I truly believe that we need to hear this word every single day of our lives as we keep our eyes focused on the cross and focused on Jesus. In times when it is hard to look at anything but the cross and but Jesus And when our attention goes to the wind and to the waves and to the white caps, we need to press on. Concentrate on what's really important, not our doubts and our fears and our failures, but look to Jesus.
Because Jesus is always there with us. Always there calling us up out of the depths of despair. Amen.